Welcome to the Soul Joy Mindset Podcast, the podcast that invites, empowers, and equips women with the tools to release the hustle and grind and embrace a life of ease and joy. I am your host, Teresa Timms, a lover of life, strategic thinker, theologian, storyteller, sexy, sassy, freedom seeker, and coach. In each episode of this podcast, we will explore a topic that will help you change your mindset and ultimately change every aspect of your life. So sit back and hear yourself, see yourself, and truly believe that it is possible to live a life that brings your soul joy. So prayer alone is not going to stop, prevent, keep you from burnout and the importance of having this conversation and what it means for women of faith. What does it mean for women of faith, especially now, is why I want to have this conversation. And over the last few months, reports have been coming out um, around burnout levels for women and the way that this pandemic has disproportionately impacted women, the way that this pandemic has impacted not only our work environments, but our home environments and the amount of emotional labor and energy that women are holding in their in their lives. And so when you think about if you are a woman and you are responsible for the care of your house, your job, and then you are pulled on every single level, and then you add in the dynamics of women of faith, the numbers are absolutely staggering. Like it is, it is unbelievable the numbers that have come up. Essence Magazine reported that 64% of black women, women, their readers that they surveyed, 64% said that their mental, emotional, and physical health has declined over the last year. So that means that if you are in a room with a five other women, and especially if they're women of color, three of those five women are at the end of burnout. Like they are experiencing this level of burnout to the max. And this is not just um, like, this is not just statistics. This is people's real life experience behind these screens, behind these um, engagements. What we do know is that people are struggling. People are struggling with their emotional health. Um, I don't ever go to the grocery store or out running errands when I'm in a hurry because I know that people are running on short fumes. And what happens when you get a bunch of people running on short fumes in a space? is going to be blow ups and and all types of tension that's going to happen. So I go when I'm well rested, when I have some patience, when I can deal with people because people are are running on on nothing. When it comes to mental health, black and brown women already <laughs> were disproportionately overwhelmed and and their mental health were already taxed. Um black and brown with mental health professionals were already um 
seeing a rise in people that they see. So you throw in a pandemic on top of that. You throw in on top of that a government that's not taking care of its people. You pour in on top of that people who are working day to day to get things done. Women are stretched like just stretch to no end. And if you are particularly a woman of faith, you add in there the dynamics of your house and your job and then your faith community. And I read this article yesterday um, and I like to cite my sources because I because it's important for me that you know that I'm just not making this stuff off the top of my head. It is from Duke's um, Divinity School. They have a newsletter, uh, a newsletter that comes out called Faith and Leadership. And in this newsletter, they were saying that um, clergy, 72% of clergy say that they are completely maxed out, that they work between 55 and 65 hours per week and that is almost like they did this survey pre-covid beginning of covid can you imagine being a woman clergy like the women that were quoted in this article was saying not only am i like doing the things around my house and those who had children were saying i am homeschooling my children i am I am running a church that's not even inside of a building. I'm trying to raise funds for this building. I got to write sermons. And then you have whining and complaining parishioners. This is a true story. I have a friend that is a pastor. She is a badass, amazing pastor. She is married. She has two children, two school-age children. She is teaching them at home. And someone had the audacity to tell her that they can tell that she is reading from a piece of paper when she's doing her sermons. So they want her to give more eye contact to them um, over the screen. Are you kidding me? Like the things that church people complain about, the things that church people experience, I will say this and you can quote me on this. Church environments are some of the most healthy, most unhealthy work environments to work in. I'll say it again. Church and faith environments are some of the most toxic and unhealthy work environments to be in. They are abusive. When it comes to women clergy, when it comes to women and congregation, the brunt of the work fall on, it falls on the women folk. Women folk, however you identify as femme, woman, it falls on those people. If you go to any, I don't care if it's a synagogue, I don't care if it's a mosque, I don't care if it's your United Methodist white church, your Baptocostal black church, the majority of the heavy, heavy lifting, the day-to-day lifting is being done by female embodied people. That the women are running the Sunday schools, the behind the scenes, the cleaning up, the cooking, and even more so now in this time of COVID, churches are being and faith communities are being the center of support for communities. And if you go from anywhere from Catholic charities to your mosque to a Hindu temple, the people who are the majority of the people that you see who are collecting the items, passing out, sorting, feeding, cooking are women, are women. And if you are a person who works within a faith environment, those are toxic work spaces. And why do I say that? I say that for a few reasons. One, because there is an expectation that because it is a calling from God, because it's a calling from above, that you are superhuman. 
And I say this tongue in cheek because of course people know it's not true, but they treat you as such. So there's not a usually an HR department in churches. Think about your church or your congregation or your place of worship. There's not an HR department. There's no one saying, um, you, you need to rest, you need to take some time off. Also, if you see women in faith communities and they are employed by that faith community, I can almost double dare you that they are underpaid. I can almost double dare you that they are the least paid person on the roster. And I wanna pause here really quick and say, we have a lot of time confused and conflated mega church with local church. Mega church is not local church. Mega church, the big, big church, church. I'm not talking about those places. Those are the outliers. I'm talking about the people who are on the ground in the communities, those type of synagogues and mosques and places of worship. Those are the places that I'm talking about that are harmful, where people are actually really, really struggling. So there's not an HR department that keep you safe. Um, also, there is this constant space of you are supposed to be uh, be available. Um, if you if you are a person of faith, to ask any clergy person, any clergy person that you know, how many funeral funerals or memorial service they have done over these last two years, and you would be floored by the amount of bedsides, the amount of families, the amount of phone calls and memorials that, that clergy people are showing up to. So then, <laughs> this level of high stress at work, you are underpaid, overworked, always on call, always available, and then you have to perform. I went to seminary. I went to a, I went to Duke University, a great seminary. Nowhere in seminary did I learn to be a social media person. There was no AV and tech. Like all the ways that you see these spaces now having to go online to connect with people, that was also a huge learning curve for all of these people. So my focus is on women. And when I think about women in the pulpit, women in the pews, women who are leading in these spaces, the amount of hurt, the amount of trauma, the amount of stress, the amount of lifting that they are doing for entire communities, not only lifting that they're doing for themselves, not lifting that they're just doing for their household, but lifting that women are doing in faith spaces for entire communities. And they were doing this, we were doing this before there was a pandemic. So you throw a panorama on top of it and racial injustice and social violence and Supreme Court bullshit. What do you think is going to happen? These women are burnt out, underpaid, overwork, burnt out. And then we have a theology of self-sacrifice. This theology of you are supposed, this is the good that you give to the world. So give all of yourself, pour out all of yourself, always pour out of yourself. When was the last time your faith leader took a vacation? When was the last time you all gave your faith leader a significant financial bonus? When was the last time you actually paid for your faith leader or the women in your congregation to engage in meaningful continuing education or self-care practices or sent them somewhere to take care of themselves? Does your faith leader have a therapist? Does your faith leader have another faith leader that they really connect with? Does your faith leader have days off? Like, 
When I think about all of the ways that we abuse, we abuse faith leaders. And then when I think about when those, when those faith leaders are women, you would be, you would be, it's insurmountable the amount that women of faith carry. And not only do they carry these things for themselves, but they carry it for their community and they are stressed out. And then they are in communities that do not talk about therapy. Their health plans probably don't have you. is not enough to keep you from burnout. Prayer enough. Prayer is alone is not enough to keep you from stroke, from heart disease, high blood pressure, diabetes. When you think about your clergy person, do you think about, when you think about women in your congregation, when you think about clergy people who are female in your faith community, and I, and I actually, I keep saying synagogues and mosques because I know women leaders in mosques and I know rabbis in, in spaces that they are raising families. Have you ever considered how their marriages are going? That how much they give and give and give to this community that they have to keep running. What what are their marriages like? What are their parenting styles like? How are you providing care for their for, for their whole self? And it's not it's not happening. It's not happening. And the number is 72% of clergy people are working 55 to 65 hours. And then the numbers of clergy people who are leaving ministry this is a number that isn't talked about as much, but the same rate that you see doctors and nurses and school teachers leaving schools and leaving hospitals is the same rate. If you look around, you'll start seeing that clergy people are leaving congregations. It has been the great resignation has not only been in corporate spaces and healthcare spaces and classroom, the great resignation is also true in spaces of worship. And so then I get on here for the last however many years I've been on Instagram and I talk about the importance of self-care and I'm not just talking about self-care. I'm talking about community care. What does it mean for us to have communities that care about each other so that it allows individuals to engage in self-care, that we provide resources and time and space for people to rest and we are burning out we are burning out the nucleus of our communities and that of women and we are burning out women of faith in our communities and so one thing i want to name on this space is that a lot of women of faith follow me i have i don't have a huge following i have over five thousand followers and a, major, a lot of those women who I, they would identify as in some type of faith tradition. However, when I look at my clients, and I have a great roster of clients, when I looked back over my roster of clients, the number of those women who identify as being a part of a faith community is very, very small. And then I said, this is interesting that though a lot of women of faith and clergy women follow me, clergy women apply called clergy women or women who are, you know, they, they talk about their faith being important to them. They apply, they DM, they ask questions, but they do not follow through with joining the program. And what I know to be true is that it's not always finances. It is not always the commitment. It is a tie between, it is, it is the both and of, one, it is the 
like I, I can I can put this money towards something else, somebody else. If somebody else asks you for the amount of my coaching program and they needed it for something, you would give it to them like that because you see that it's helping somebody. However, that way of investing in yourself to to take care of yourself and your own needs, it's not there because it's all about this self sacrifice of giving 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 being this overflowing source of giving to everyone else and what saddens me about this the most is because i created my program with women of faith with clerk with particularly clergy women in mind because i know how stressed out and how tense we are the year that i wrote my doctoral proposal i had three clergy women in my conference to die three black clergy women to die to die and it so bothered me because it was like how can we have clergy women preaching about the goodness of god the the space of god and life everlasting and joy of living and they are suffering suffering what where is the disconnect between women of faith realizing that they too need goodness that they too need support that they too need community of accountability prayer alone will not save us prayer is great i believe in the power of prayer i believe in the power of spiritual gifts however even jesus even the prophets went away and engaged in self-care, engaged in a form of care. Some of my favorite, favorite um, scriptures from the New Testament about Jesus, I'm Christian, about Jesus. Jesus would literally hide from the disciples, like get in a boat, go to the other side of the mountain and hide from them to get away. This space of not being able to access for ourselves, but but we're trying to give it to other people is manipulative. <laughs> it is manipulative. Like for even for me, if I were to come on here day after day, night after night, talk to you about care and joy, and then I get off of here and my life is a raggedy piece of shit and I am unhappy and depressed and walling around and not moving, like that's fraudulent. It is fraudulent. And also, what type of, what does it say about our communities of faith that we have this constant, constant well of taking, that we know how to take from people? We take, we take their sermons, we take their gifts, we take their prayers, we take their lives, we take their relationships, we take and take and take and take and take and take and take. But we do not have language. We do not have proper language in these communities about how do we give to? How do we help reserve? How do we have boundaries around? When um, the pastor of Alfred Street, um, John Wesley, when he did his sermon series on Selah and he took time off, um, that made it into the Washington Post and it made tractions everywhere. And it's like what he was saying was not revolutionary, but because he was a black preacher in a black Baptist church saying, I am taking time off to take care of myself, to spend time with my family, the church, there's enough leaders in the church to handle itself. It was like, oh my goodness, we've never heard of this before. And I do also want to say that if John Wesley was a woman, the amount of pushback, it wouldn't have, it wouldn't have happened. It probably wouldn't have happened. Um, the women leaders who are able to do that are in places that are higher steeple, who are able to afford it, where they have leadership in place. But the other 
bullshit, excuse my language, don't excuse my language, it is what it is. The other bullshit that happened is that um, when women rabbis and clergy and women leaders, faith leaders go into congregations, they are often put into the poorest, the least resources, the most struggling, so they come in as a life support. So then you bring in all of like all of this energy and potential to in this dire situation to be life support and you leave them out there with nothing, with nothing. And so if you are a woman of faith, I don't care what faith community that you are in. Prayer is not going to be enough to save you. Meditation is not going to be enough to save you. You can pray all day, but faith without works is dead Faith without works is dead. If you do not have a community, I mean, when you think about prophets, when you think about faith leaders, when you think about leaders, they had community. Community. Like you need community. You need structure. You need accountability. You need a way where you can, where you can see the vision. The other thing that I want to name too that's hard for women of faith, why I um, I was talking today to another person, um, <clears throat> another three people who own coaching business or therapy business and they talk about it is that we put so much shame around therapy. We put so much shame around going to the doctor. Um, that's why I share a lot about therapy. I shared about being on antidepressants. I share a lot about going to the doctor because that that is something that we need to take shame away from like the more that we normalize therapy your pastor i i hate to say this but a majority of your pastors or your faith leaders are not clinically licensed certified mental health professionals so you going into your their office or on their zoom talking to them about your problems that is not therapy you need a licensed professional therapist to work through your problems. Fasting and praying isn't an absolute tool that I absolutely believe in. However, you have to have more than that. You have to have more than that. There is something about, um, coaching is not an instantaneous um, investment. Coaching is not like, and I was so thankful when I was in a conversation with Dr. Monica this morning, um, Dr. Monica Coleman, when we were talking about this, like, Coaching is a long-term investment. When you join any coaching program, when you go to therapy, you will not do one, two, three sessions of therapy and be out of there like, huh, that fixed that. When you do coaching, it's not like, okay, at the end of these 12 weeks, like my whole entire life will be changed. At the end of this year, my whole entire life will be changed. It is a long-term investment. I have coaching clients who've come back to me months after coaching with me and said I finally applied this thing and I see like it takes time and what does it mean for women of faith where this is not miraculous overnight story this isn't a water to wine this isn't a Lazarus wake like raise up this is you having an investment in yourself you learning the tools and then applying them over and over and over again there's work that has to happen in that so I'm about to say something that um that you can push back on it. When people tell me that they don't have the money for coaching, I always say to myself, we pay for what we value. We pay for what we value. Coaching is not any more expensive than the Peloton, than the amount of times you get your hair done, your nails done, your makeup done, your coach bags and all that kind of stuff. We pay for what we value. I have a girlfriend just today who always jokes at me and say, Teresa, your coaching is too expensive. However, this girlfriend, um, she drives a luxury car. 
She drives a bought it just bought another one this year her second one luxury car she values that luxury car however she struggles with her confidence she struggles with her physical health she struggles um with having her articulating her value in the workspace and every time she says that to me i say we pay for what we value we pay for what we value. And so it is not an issue of socioeconomics that black and brown women or women of faith don't have the money. We have the money. We, we definitely have the money, but it's how we choose to use that money. Also, when I think about there are people who are paying $20,000 for coaching programs because they see the value in it. My coaching program is not $20,000. What I'm saying is though, there is not this instantaneous, like I'm not guaranteeing you that you talk to me on one call or in this end of 12 weeks and everything would be done. Like you are planting the seed for the future. The money that I put in my, in my 401k or in my Roth, that's money that goes for me, but I don't see the investment of that money to years down the road, but I know that I'm making an investment today for how I want to have a financial future for tomorrow. And I said this earlier this week, um, is that who I have chosen to be today is because of who I want to be tomorrow. So if you want to be confident and free and have clarity and not be burnt out next year, you got to be that person today. Praying is praying is great. And I pray a lot. I believe in prayer. Um, I come from people who prayed and fast. But I also know that prayer can't save us alone. Prayer alone cannot save us. If you are a woman of faith, if you are a woman, and then if you add on, I read also um, a statistic and I didn't want to quote it because, um, you know, statistics can be here or there, but there's a statistic out of the UK that said, what people who are part of faith communities actually report higher levels of depression. And they say they're not sure of the correlation between faith and it's not people it's women between faith and women but something about the two increases depression and the study went on to say about it's about performance feeling perfect feeling like they need to be perfect having shame having guilt and it was like oh my goodness and the report went on to say you know we're not saying this is a direct correlation but what we have found is that when women identify as being part of a faith community, they also report having higher levels of depression. And I was like, what? We are going, we are logging in, being a part of communities, and we are struggling in plain sight. If you walked into a place and your arm was bleeding, someone would say what's wrong and try to bandage you up. But we are part of faith communities where we're all just sort of bleeding and hurt and there's no language around it. There's no, there's nothing around helping us. Think about just if you were to close your eyes for a second and think about the people in your faith community who are women who are struggling with their health, their mental health, their relationships, who lacked, who lacked a sense of identity, who lacked confidence. Y'all are all worshiping in the same place. And who's talking about it? Who's talking about it? So this work that I do is important to me because I want us to thrive. I truly, truly want us to thrive. And what, is, what does it mean for us, the women of faith, the women of faith, to walk around and it's just a sad case? I wouldn't want to be a part of a faith community if everybody looked like they had been to hell and back. Why? 
why? That's, that's, my, that's what I'm doing in my program is that any client that works with me, anyone who comes through my program, it is about equipping them with the tools of, yes, hold on to your faith, hold on to it tight, and these are other tools where you can thrive. It is possible for you to live a life of joy. It is possible um, for you to have good mental health. It is possible for you to have good physical health. It is possible for you to have healthy relationships and confidence. It is possible for you. However, there has to be a commitment on your part. It has to be a commitment. And that commitment isn't taught to us because there are very few places that we learn, especially as women of faith, to commit to ourselves. We are taught over and over again to commit to other people. We are taught over and over again the value of committing to other people. Commit to your children. Commit to your husband. Commit to your job. Commit to the church. Where do you ever hear commit to yourself? Where have you been told and socialized to commit to yourself? I'll wait. Nowhere. You make vows to people and institutions and jobs and and you and there's no training. I no one ever taught me growing up to really value and commit to myself. It was said and wrote like, oh, be good to yourself, whatever, but it was never ever taught to me what that meant for me to say. You know, women, we are taught over and over again to override the feeling in our gut. Like that gut feeling that we have, we are taught all our lives to override that. To, oh, um, it's not nothing. It's just your hormones. It's just this. It's just that that, that place inside of us that speaks to us. Um, in Hebrew, it's the nefesh, like this, the space in our gut, in our innards, that we know that something's not right. Over and over again, we're taught to, to, to not pay attention to it. Even though people say, don't let no one touch your body, your body is sacred, we go into faith spaces where all people do is touch your body. Touch your body. Think about how many times you've been in a, uh, in a worship space or a faith space and someone has touched your body without your permission. Like these holy hugs and passing of the peace. Maybe I don't want to be hugged by you. There's the space of people can lay hands on you and do all these things to your body and in these spaces, it is appropriate. It is, it is appropriate. Like we just let it slide. Where in your life have someone actually told you and taught you how to commit to yourself? Committing to a job, committing to school, committing to a partner, committing to your children. But as a woman, where have you been taught where has it been demonstrated for you? Where has it been told to you that you should and can honor yourself and commit to yourself? We don't have examples of it. We don't have good, healthy examples of it. My work is to journey alongside you. My work, it is not so much that we will not have problems. We will, in this life, we will have problems. I could list you out a bunch of them that I've had, that I have. It's not that hard days won't come. It's not that the depression and the sadness won't come. It's not that we are Pollyanna because I'm not into Pollyanna bullshit, nothing. But what I do know is that <laughs> my joy, my well-being, my peace of mind is important enough for me to save. It's important for me to save. 
Are you the superhero in everyone's life but your own? Are you exhausted, overwhelmed, and feel stuck in a cycle of working hard with nothing to show for it? Are you stressed, struggling with your health, lack intimacy, and a sense of personal fulfillment? This episode is brought to you by my Soul Joy Coaching six-month signature mindset program that empowers women who are ready to break toxic cycles and unhealthy habits so that they can claim their identity and voice to show up to life unapologetically. We use a curriculum and framework that is grounded in joy and centers vision, strategy, community, and an abundance of love and encouragement. I guarantee you that Soul Joy Coaching will change your life. If you're ready for joy, let's talk. Visit my website, www.teresatims.com and take my joy assessment. This assessment will give you insight and help you to identify patterns and your growing edges. Use this score as information to help you take the next faithful step in claiming joy in your life. Go ahead. Book a call today to get your score at www.teresatims.com.